welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2. Now, there's a question that all people struggle with at some point in their life, and that question is... Who am I? What makes me who I am? There's, there's a point where we look in the mirror and we ask ourselves, what makes me different than everybody else? And we spend our whole lives chasing this concept of, of what is my identity? What makes me special? What makes me what makes me me? And it really starts off when we're teenagers. And, and for our teens in here, these guys know that it is all about what separates you from everybody else. In, modern, modern, in the modern world, um, you see that a lot on social media. Who has the best TikTok dances? Who has the most Instagram followers? They're looking for something to say, this is who you are. But in my day, and in many of your days, we didn't have social media to try to find our identity. And so we found it in weird ways, like customizing our vehicle to reflect our personality or for most of us we all through went through that one trend where we bought the clothes we wish we could take back like this right here yeah, so uh, when I was 17, I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to stand out. And so I went to a store called Hot Topic. And Hot Topic has clothes that make you stand out. And I found this pink shirt. You can't quite see it right there. It says, tough guys wear pink. And that was, that was my thing. People would be like, oh, you're wearing pink. I'm like, it's because I'm tough, right? And, and it's weird because I had, I had this identity in the guy who wears the pink shirt. And 20 years later, I still love pink for some reason. Like it ingrained within me this identity here. So like we do, we do these crazy things as teenagers trying to figure out what our identity is. But it doesn't end. It doesn't end when we become adults. As adults, we still seek to find our identity. We just find it in different places. And for, and for most of us, we find our identity in association with something. A lot of us find our identity in clubs or organizations, in causes. That's why today so many people define themselves by their political party. I am a Republican or I am a Democrat. And then we, then we argue with each other about that. Many of us, we define ourselves by our peer groups or our profession. We even, when we introduce ourselves, like, what, what are you? Who are you? What do we say? I'm a, I'm a teacher. I was in the military. I'm a blue-collar worker. We define our identity by these different things. Many of us define our identity by our hobbies, what we like to do. You can, you can tell a sports fan when you look at them just by the way that they dress. And so I guess what I'm getting here is, is that our identity is something that, that is outward in us. Like I can tell you your identity and what you find your identity in by, by the things that you wear, by, by what you, the way that you talk, by the vehicle that you drive and the stickers on the back. I want to quote this, this great theologian on the concept of identity. This is the great theologian, uh, Jeff Foxworthy. He, he's a theologian of redneckology. And, and this is what Jeff Foxworthy says about rednecks and their identity. He says, you give me a rednecks t-shirt drawer, 
I can tell you what kind of truck he drives, what radio station he listens to, who he roots for in NASCAR, what he likes to hunt, who his favorite college football team is, his philosophy on life, and where he went on vacation the last 21 summers. I think there's some something interesting about that because that's true. Like, like we wear our identity on us, whether it's in our clothing or how we interact with the world. So when Jesus enters into our life and our identity changes, should that not also reflect in our lives? Shouldn't we also identify as a follower of Jesus when our identity changes from, from one who was lost to one who is found? When I go from being an orphan to a child of God, shouldn't that be reflected in me? When God has pursued me and now I choose to pursue him, it should be expressed like all the other parts of our life. And so today in our Dilemma series, we're talking about identity. Over the last three weeks, we've really been studying what the dilemma of humankind is, this, this problem of sin. And what we have found in the Bible is that sin is, is a cause of death. And if you don't know what death is, we think of death as a physical death. Death simply means separation. Death for me physically is when my soul separates from my body. Death is when death steals our loved ones from us and we're separated. But death also means separation between us and a holy and perfect God. And so when we think of death, we always think of our death in the future. But the truth is, for many of us, before we become Christians, let me take that back. For all of us, before we become Christians, we walk and we live in death separated from God. And that's, that's where all of our eternities are until Jesus comes here. Jesus comes here and he says that, that death looks like a heavy thing to carry. Let me carry that for you. And so Jesus took our death upon him. He died on a cross. And when we say died, he was separated. His soul was separated from his body. But there was a moment on the cross where Jesus, who is God, was separated from God the Father. There's separation and death. And Jesus experienced that for us so that we wouldn't have to. And three days later, after they buried his body, he comes walking out, proving that he has the power to take care of death and proving that we can be unseparated. I don't know if that's a word. So here's the question that I have after we've talked about what our sin is and we've talked about the death of Jesus and what that means and we've talked about the resurrection of Jesus and what that means. What do I do with this information now? What do I do with this concept of what Jesus did for me? And I think we're going to find our answer to that in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, it introduces a scenario where there's a lot of people sitting in a congregation, sitting in an area, and they've just experienced the same thing that we have. They, they've, they've been taught about how sin brings death into your life. They, they've been taught about what Jesus did on the cross for you. They've been taught about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the question for them as it is for us is, what do I do now that I have learned about this? Read with me in Acts chapter 2. This is verses 37 through 42. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. What they heard was the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and unto the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord God shall call. 
And with many other words did he testify and exhort, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So as we ask this question, what do I do with this information now that I know about Jesus, now that I understand what the cost of my sin is? The answer to my question is answered in these verses. And so if you've got your bulletin with you, there's an outline in there. We're just going to, we're going to go through this step by step and talk about what happens after we hear the message of Jesus. So number one, after hearing the message of Jesus, we are convicted. That's a biblical word that we don't use a whole lot of other times in our life. The word conviction or convicted. But, but it's something that if you've ever experienced it, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you know what conviction feels like. What conviction simply means is we've come to a place within ourselves where we understand the penalty of our sin or we understand the guilt of our sin and we understand the penalty of it. It's just like our legal terms here in America. In America, in a court of law, you are found, you are innocent until proven guilty. But when somebody is put on trial and they are found guilty of a crime, we say they were what? They were convicted of a crime. What that means is before the court and before our justice system, your crime is realized along with the punishment that goes along with it. And when we talk about Christian conviction, when we talk about biblical conviction, it's the exact same concept. There's a conviction within us where I realize in my heart and in my soul, I realize my sin and I realize the penalty that I deserve for that sin. Why we call it conviction. And what you see in this group that's listening to Peter as he's preaching the gospel is they feel conviction. And it's described this way in verse 37. It says they were pricked in the heart. Some translations say they were cut to the heart. And that's an excellent description of what conviction is. Because what happens with conviction is it, it just it grabs your heart. It grabs your being. And you don't know really how to express it. Nobody says conviction feels like this. But you know in your heart that something has grabbed you. Conviction is a lot like, it's a lot like love. When you love someone, you know, you know that you love them. You can feel that love. But what does that love feel like? Could you express it to somebody? And it's the same thing with conviction, with, with the conviction that the Spirit talks about. Is, is you know, you know that God is calling you to do something. You know that you're called to action. You know that God is pursuing you. But you don't really know how to explain what that feels like. And that's why I love the way the Bible describes it here when it says they were, they were cut to the heart. There's no better description of that when, you, when your heart just opens up and it says, I am guilty of my sin. In mass, these people experienced this as they heard Peter talking and they knew they needed, uh, they knew they needed salvation. So in verse 37, they ask, what shall I do? What, what shall we do now that we have heard this? What is the next step? Because we feel like this is applying to us. Now, when they're asking that, I want to be very clear as we talk about salvation, the question is not, what shall we do? It's, how do I get salvation? They're not asking, what can I do to make God love me? They're asking, they're asking how do I receive this particular salvation? And so, they have asked a question, which brings us to point number two. If, after hearing the message of Jesus, we must seek salvation. 
Now, I love what we see in this group of people is they knew something was required of them. They didn't understand it completely, but they knew that they had to respond in some way. Uh, listen to me carefully. You are not saved because you have heard about Jesus. You are not a Christian because you come to church. None of those things matter. It takes a personal commitment to Christ, a personal faith that you grow in to become a follower of Christ, to become a Christian. There are no works and no way of earning it. In this group of people, they know there must be a step to accepting Jesus. And that step is very simple. It's just accept, accepting Jesus in faith. When they, when they tell Peter, how do I get this salvation? What do we have to do? Peter doesn't say, go out and be good for three years. Peter doesn't say, earn your way into heaven. Listen, listen to what Peter says. This is in verse 38. Peter answers them. He says, repent and be baptized. So we're going to talk about each of those. Uh, point number three, after hearing the message of Jesus, we must repent. Repent is a churchy word that you will never hear, almost never hear, outside of the context of a church. It's, it's something that I like to describe in, in, in layman's terms because it's not something that we really understand. To technically repent means to turn away from your sin, and even that's kind of complicated. What does it mean to turn away from your sin? I like to put it this way. Repentance simply means I choose to do it God's way instead of my way. In my life, when I want to do something one way and God says no to do it another, I choose to do it His way. And what I see in this is what Peter is calling them to is faith. That is the answer. When, it's, when we ask, how do we get salvation? It's faith. It's nothing that these people are going to do in being good enough for God. It's faith. And let me explain to you how that ties in to what Peter is saying here. See, we have taken faith and we have lowered it down to just a mental belief that Jesus was a person who walked the earth. And there's a lot of people in this world who claim to be Christians that are not because what they think is faith is just nodding their head and agreeing that there was a Jesus. But a real faith, a real faith means that you believe it so deeply that you're convicted by it, that it moves you to action. Because see, if we really honestly hear this message and we truly believe that sin equals death, it will change you. It will change the way you live your life. If I look at sin and I know sin will kill me, I will run from sin because I believe that it is true. And if Jesus Christ comes in here and we really truly believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died and rose again for us to experience salvation, we will run from sin and we will run to Jesus because we believe that Jesus is who He says He is. We believe that He offers us life. And so when Peter talks about repenting, he's not talking about earning God's grace. He's talking about the movement in ourselves from faith. I love the way that James talks about faith. It explains it very well. James says this. James says that faith without works is dead. Let me say that again. Faith without works is dead. And a lot of times we misunderstand that particular verse. We, we, we hear that verse and people go, so I've got to work for my salvation? Like it's not good enough just to have faith in Christ? That's not what that verse means. James is not calling us to have works or to do things to make Jesus love us more or to earn our way into good graces. What James is saying is a faith that doesn't move you to action is not actually faith. 
And many of us live our entire lives with something that we call faith. We say we believe in God, we go to church sometimes, but we've never had a faith that moves us to action. And if that's you, if you've never had a faith that moves you to action to follow Jesus Christ, listen, I'm not trying to get in your business, but you need to know a faith that doesn't move you to action is not a real faith. And whatever it is that's not a real faith is not a saving faith. It's not a faith that brings you to Christ. It's not a a faith that, that gets God's grace to rescue you. So when we, find, when we find faith in Christ, we will be moved to acknowledge Jesus. We acknowledge our sin in light of Jesus, and then we will acknowledge our need for a Savior. And in our context, most of the time, what does it look like to express faith? What does it look like to acknowledge God? In our context, most of the time, we will tell you or we will express that as a prayer. That's how I express my faith. Where I went to God and I'm like, look, I know I'm going to hell, God. And I know I deserve that. But God, I believe that you can keep me from that. I, I, believe, I believe that you can save me. But faith doesn't always have to be expressed as a prayer. There's a story in the Bible of a woman and she was very sick. And the Bible doesn't say exactly what her d- disease was. But, but it, it says that she had been bleeding nonstop for 12 years. And in this story, this woman is an outcast. She's completely lost. In, in Israel at this time, any concept of blood made you unclean. So this, meant, this woman could not get married because no man could sleep in a bed with her. This meant that nobody could touch her. She could not receive hugs from her siblings or from her mother or father because she was considered unclean. She had gave her whole life to all of these doctors trying to figure out how to stop this, and it could not be stopped. And then she heard about Jesus. And one day Jesus was walking by and she had a plot in her, in, her, in her mind. I can't be close to Jesus. If people see me in the crowd, I'll be in trouble because I'm unclean. I can't touch Jesus. But if I just reach out and touch his coat as he walks by, that'll be enough. I don't know much about Jesus, but I know if I could just touch his coat, that would be enough to fix me. And Jesus is walking through a crowd. He's actually on his way to where a little girl is dying. And they're hurrying up. Hurry up, Jesus. We got to get to this girl. You got to save her before she dies. She's only 12. She's not going to make it. And as he walks by, the lady just walks out or walks out and she just reaches out and she just brushes his coat as he walks by. And Jesus, who's on his way to an emergency call, he just stops. He turns around and he says, who just touched me? And the disciples are like, you're in a crowd of people. Everybody touched you. Let's go. This is important. This is intense. We got to get to the little girl. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. Hang on. This is important too. Who just touched me? And the woman, and the woman raises her hand and she says, it, it was me. I'm sorry. You know what Jesus says to that woman who was moved to action because she believed that Jesus was who he said he was? He says, woman, your faith has saved you. See, faith will move us to action. It is an expression. The action is an expression of our faith. The faith is not action. So after this, Peter says, repent. And then he adds something to the extra end of that. And it says, repent and be baptized. So point number four is after hearing the message of Jesus, we should be baptized. Now let me stop again because I don't want you to get confused. Let me be clear. Actions cannot save you. I cannot baptize you into heaven. It is not possible. Water does not save you. I took a shower this morning. It makes me smell better. It doesn't make me more holy. 
Like water will not save you. But Peter adds this in as the next step of this. In verse 41, in response to this, it says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. There's a clear chronology here. Clear what happened. Those that received his word, that's past tense. So those who had repented, those who had put faith in him, those who had become Christians were then baptized. And so we see in this concept of, of what we're talking about here, Peter says, okay, repent, and then immediately after repenting, what you should do after you are saved is you should be baptized. Now, this brings us a question. Why baptism? It seems like a big deal in the story, right? Peter's answering some very big questions. He says, what should you do? You should repent. You should become a Christian. You should be saved. And then you should be baptized. Now, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, well, accept God in faith. And then if you feel like it, why don't you go get baptized? He didn't say, he didn't say repent of your sins. And when it's convenient for you, go ahead and be baptized. That's something you should probably do sometime. It's this continuation of thought with him is that if you are saved, if you will repent of your sin, then you are in obedience to God and you should follow God in obedience and baptism. Now, why is that so important to Peter? Let me back that up. Why is that so important to God? Why is that so important for God that he would say immediately to be baptized? And the answer to that, the answer to that is it's about expressing your identity. It's about letting the world know who you are and wanting people to see in you Jesus Christ. A little over five years ago, Jessica and I stood on this stage and and we got married. It was the weirdest thing ever because we stood up here, we said some words, and then we're back, like, back in the back room. And I'm like, so I guess you're my wife now. And she's like, yeah, I guess so. But up until that point in her life, she had been known as Jessica Huffman. Jessica Huffman. But the moment she stood on the stage with me and said, I do, from that point forward, she was known as Jessica Coates. Why do we do that in our culture? Why, why, why do we take the same last name when we're married? And the answer to that is, we want people to know who we belong to. We want people to know that's my husband, and that's my wife, and this is our family, and our children identify through us with our last name. And when we talk about baptism, what baptism does for us, it does not save us, it does not make us more holy. It is a declaration of our identity together. So what I wanted to do today, because we don't talk about this often, is I wanted to take some time and just talk about what is baptism from the Scripture, and why is it so important? So continuing on our notes, the next slide up here, uh, what is baptism? Point A is baptism is a public announcement of your faith. This is the way that we identify to other believers that we are followers of Christ. This is the way we identify to non-believers, people who are not Christians, that we are followers of Christ. And as Peter is talking about this, after receiving this message, he says to us, go get baptized. What he says is declare that Jesus Christ is God. Declare that you have chosen to follow him, that you are one of his. Declare to the world, this is my new identity. I belong to him. I've got another picture coming up here. This is a, a young lady named Rafika Berry. This is when she was a teenager. Many of, I've talked about this before, I think, but many of you probably remember in the news, Rafika Berry was a teenager and she grew up in a Muslim household. 
Some friends from school invited her to church and, and she went to this church and there she heard exactly what we've been learning. She heard about sin. She heard about death. And she heard about her need for a savior. And there she became a Christian. But for Rafika Berry, she had to keep it quiet. Coming from a Muslim family from the other side of the world with, with strict beliefs about Islam, she feared for her safety if it was found out she was a Christian. And for a long period of time, she would sneak off to attend church with her friends. She would worship God. She would hide her Bible under her bed. But she would not follow God in baptism because if somebody saw her and told her dad, she was scared that he might try to kill her. Finally, she got to a point where she wanted to identify. She wanted to follow God in baptism. When she tells the story of her baptism, she talks about how excited she was to be obedient to God in this way. And her church took her down to a, seclu a secluded river, and there they baptized her. It was only two days later that her dad come to her angry and frustrated and screaming and yelling, I heard you were baptized as a Christian. And that started an international firestorm where Rafika Berry fled for her life. But she never once in her memoir, when she talks about running to different states away from her family, in legal battles that are in every news cycle ever uh, in, the, in the country, she never once says, I wish I hadn't identified with Jesus. I wish I hadn't identified as his believer and it were to stop this. You know what she says? It was worth it because he gave me everything. And I want people to know who I am. I wanted to declare who my God was and what my new identity is. Secondly, what is baptism? This is point B, a command to carry out for our church. In Matthew 28, there is the Great Commission. And at the end of every church service here, we say an adapted version of the Great Commission. In the Bible, Jesus speaks and he is giving directions in the Great Commission. You are to do these things. We have adapted that where we are echoing back to God what he has called us to do so that we know that we understand our directions. At the end of every single church period here, what we say together is, <clears throat> what we say together is, we are, I am called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy, and the Holy Spirit. That is directly from the words of Jesus. That's the reason we say that. That is what he told us. He said, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And so when we talk about baptism within the context of our church, this is something that has been given to us to do. As Ramsey Heights, we don't exist because Sunday morning is made for leisurely strolls to the church to hear Brian talk. We exist on mission. And our mission is this, is to pursue people to Christ and then carry out baptism for them and, and their announcement of their faith. That was a quick hitter. Point number three, point C. Baptism is practically being placed underwater. I guess we should always talk about that. What, what is baptism? It's just simply being placed underwater. Now, in Christianity today, in, in our world, there seems to be a question of how should baptism be administered? You will have some people that will argue for something called sprinkling, which is where water is just poured over your head, or you will have some people who argue for immersion. And the question that we have with this, and the question that some of you may have is, is it, is it really important do we, do we really have to do it the way that you say to, Brian? Well, first off, it's not what I say. And secondly, yes, it is really important. 
And, and listen, don't take my word for it. I'm just a guy with a book on a stage. Ask the Bible, is it important? And if you will study this topic, let me tell you some of the things that you will find. You will find that the word baptize or baptism is a word that really does not exist in the English language. It is a Greek word. This is a word that should have been translated, but it was transliterated. That's a lot of mumbo jumbo to explain what I'm fixing to say. What transliterated means is it's a word that we borrowed instead of translating. That means in Greek, they would have said baptizo. So when the, the, they were um, translating this into English, they looked at baptizo and they said, I don't really know how to explain that. So they just left the word in there, baptism. Uh, that means that, that when we talk about baptism, we're using the actual Greek word. That's kind of like in English, our word for fiance. In English, we have no word for the person who has agreed to marry me. So we stole a French word because it's what we do in Americans. We steal things that we like. If we like your word, we'll use it. So we stole fiance. So instead of having to go, this is the person who has agreed to marry me, I get to say, this is my fiance. Or I used to get to say that, I guess. This is my fiance. And with baptized, that's what we have done. But if this had been literally translated, this literally translates, the word baptizo literally means immersed. It literally means to be put under the water. It's used in the sense of baptism like we're talking here. It's used in the sense of drowning. It's even the word used for the sinking of a ship as it goes underwater. So this word literally translated, if Peter was talking and we had translated this correctly, it would have said, repent and be immersed. Be covered in the water. Be sunk in the ocean like a ship. And this is important for us. It's important because of symbolism. That's why the mode of baptism is important. Look, God wasn't just sitting in heaven bored one day. And he goes, okay, starting a new religion. Um, I want them to be a little bit weird, a little bit different than everybody else. So I've got to think of something that everybody is not doing. You're not doing it at work. You're not doing it at your family parties. What are they doing? I know. Let's have a giant dunking competition in every church service. That's not what God was doing. God designed baptism for a very specific purpose. He designed baptism as a symbol, as a symbol for who we are in our new identity. So when we are baptized, this is God's version of showing his mark on us. It's like this. I asked the teenagers to help me out with this, but I need the rest of you guys to help me out with this. I'm going to say a couple of colors, and I want you to yell out to me what you think of when, I, when you think of those colors. Everybody ready? Is everybody awake? Okay, all right, here we go. First set of colors, blue and gold. South side, okay, you guys scared me for a minute. South side, okay. So when you see blue and gold, you automatically identify that with South Side School. That is the colors of South Side School, correct? Okay, there are some people in the world who are not as fortunate as us South Cityans, and they have to go to school above the river, so we'll do them too. So let's try this one. What about black and orange? Batesville School District. Okay, you guys are good. You guys are ready for AP class. You ready? Here we go. College colors. College colors. Cardinal and white. The Razorbacks. Some of you weren't sure, but yes, the Razorbacks. Last one, last one. Yellow and purple. That's right, Satan. Those are the colors of Satan from LSU. Okay, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But the point is, when we see somebody wearing those colors, what they're doing to us is they're revealing their identity. They're saying, I am a Southside Southerner. I am a Batesville pirate pioneer. I am a Concord pirate. That, that's what those colors mean to us. And when we have, and when we, um, 
When we obey God in baptism, what this does is it reveals our identity to the world. Now, let me explain to you why this is revealing our identity in the way that God had it made. So, point D on your outline. Baptism is a picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6. This is verses 3 and 4. Speaking of baptism, he says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. So when Paul sees baptism, he doesn't just see baptism as some rule you have to follow because the Bible says so. He doesn't see it as something that just makes sense for a Christian to be washed in water to see if that will get the sin off of you. That doesn't even make sense. Paul sees this as a picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so if you want the identity of Jesus Christ on you, it's through baptism that you will have that. When you, when you come before a public crowd and you are baptized, you're placed underwater, which shows the death and burial of Jesus Christ. And then you are raised up, showing the, or I'm sorry, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in that. And so when we're baptized, that's what we're proclaiming. It's like, this is who I am. I follow somebody who was once dead, but now they're alive. It shows us a picture of who Jesus is, and we become a billboard for Jesus in that moment. Point E, though, is it is also a picture of my future. Listen to verse 5 of Romans 6. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness, or we shall also we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. See, baptism is a picture of my future. Listen carefully. You're going to die. Not today, I hope. Not tomorrow. I hope every last one of you outlives me. But you're going to die. And your family will be sad. And they're going to pick your clothes. They're going to put you in a casket. And they're going to make sure that your wedding ring is visible. And some pastor somewhere is going to say some nice things about you and talk about Jesus at your funeral. And then they're going to put that body underground where it is left. Now, you and I know that to be absent from the body for a Christian means to be present with Jesus Christ. That's a Bible verse. But that is not the end of it if you are in Jesus. Heaven is not the end for us. That is not the destination for us. One day, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, guess what he is doing? He is coming back for our physical bodies. You will be physically dead. But listen, one day you will again be physically alive. Not some spirit floating in heaven. One day you'll be physically alive again. That's, that's what we look forward to. And so what we're saying in baptism is, look, guys, you guys, you guys are going to have a bad day. One day I'm going to wake up dead. You're not going to want to know what to do. You're going to put my body in a grave and you'll come visit it and you'll cry. But that's not the end. I'm coming back one day, just like my Savior, just like my Jesus did Point number, or point letter F, it is a picture of my present. Listen to verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man, everybody say old man. 
Don't talk to me that way. Sorry. All right. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Verse 6, it is a picture of our present. There is this change in a follower of Jesus when they follow him. Listen, when we are saved, the Holy Spirit literally comes into us and it starts sanding off the rough edges of us. And it goes, okay, I got to get this person out of their boyfriend's bed. Okay, we got that done. Now I've got to get them out of the bars and the Holy Spirit will convict us of our sin and it will begin to change us. And then it'll start to get on um, maybe not smaller sins, but maybe more, more hidden sins. Brian, you're not very humble. We should probably sand that off a little bit and get that. And God begins to change us. We become literally a new person. And the Bible talks about this, talks about us becoming a new person by talking about the old man, the us that we were before Christ, and the new man, the us that we are after Christ. And so baptism is a picture of what is happening in us now. Baptism is a picture of burying the old me and a new me being born. Jesus was speaking with a religious leader of the time named Nicodemus. He was, he was a, uh, a priest. He was part of the Sanhedrin that we talked about last week with Joseph of Arimathea. And, and Joseph, or I'm sorry, Joseph, Nicodemus was asking him some questions. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, hey, my mom's going to have a problem with that because there's lots of like, I'm bigger now. Like, how am I going to be born again? I can't go back into her and come back out. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You've got to be born again. You must be born of spirit and water. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus in, in, in this is that you must become a new person. So when we ask ourselves, when we ask ourselves, is, is uh, baptism necessary? It is. We ask ourselves, is baptism necessary in the way that God has taught us to be baptized? Yes, it is. Because it's a picture of Jesus, what Jesus did in me, what my future is. It is a picture of me becoming a new person, a picture of me um, being born again. And God designed this for us to express our identity. And I get, I get baptism is scary. Got to get up in front of these people, put me under the water. Brian always jokes about holding me under. Like, like there's all of this stuff that, that makes baptism scary. And it seems like baptism is not convenient for us. But that's just the point. Baptism wasn't meant to be convenient. Baptism was meant to point to an inconvenient death that Jesus died for you and me. A pastor that I listen to quite often named Kyle Ottoman shared this story a couple weeks ago, and I really like it. He says, I was a young pastor. I was really excited, and he went on a mission trip. I think he was in Africa. He might have been in the Middle East. I'm not sure. So he, he went here, and he's sharing the gospel with people. And, and he talks to these two young individuals, and they do exactly what we've done here. They hear about their sin, they hear about Jesus Christ, and they make a decision to follow him and repent. And Kyle goes, okay, well, now we need to baptize you. That's, that's the next step. If you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to be obedient to him, the first thing that he calls you to do is to be baptized. It's your turn to do this. And the two guys go, all right, let me go home and tell my family. And Kyle's like, yeah, that'd be great. Bring them on up here. They'll experience it too. We'll share Jesus with them. And then these two guys come back a few hours later and they've got backpacks on and they're by themselves. And Kyle asks one of the local pastors, he says, where's their family? They said they were gonna go tell their family that they were about to be baptized. They should come here and celebrate with us. And the pastor said, no, 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 you don't understand. They weren't telling their family, they weren't telling their family to come watch them be baptized. They were telling their family goodbye. 
Because in their culture, to become a Christian means to be ostracized from your family. See, baptism is not about our convenience. It's about our obedience to Christ. Why would they give up everything? Why would they give their family? Because their faith moved them to action. Because they believed that Jesus was raised for the dead and they believed that was worth sacrificing everything over. So in closing today, Brother Danny, if you'd like to make your way up here, I want to ask you a couple of questions for our reflection time. Just as simple as it can be put, I like the way that it's put this way. I want you to answer this question to yourself. If you were to die today on a scale of one to ten, one being not sure and ten being absolutely positive, if you were to die today, how sure are you that you would go to heaven? How sure are you that you've placed your faith in Jesus? If you've answered anything less than a 10, I've got good news for you. I've got good news for you. Today, you can leave here with an assurance of a 10. All you have to do is make a choice to follow Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you've reached that moment and you want to be like Christ, you want to identify with him, maybe some of you have been fighting this. Maybe it's time for you to identify with him in baptism and express your faith to the world. This is our reflection time, and I just wanted you to take a few minutes to meditate on what it means to be a follower and what's been offered to you. I would love to counsel you through how to put your faith in Christ. If you don't even know where to start, I'll talk through you, talk with you. If you just want to come up here and pray, you're welcome to do that. But don't leave here the same way as you walked in. Please stand and worship with us.